Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joyce Vance, Jill Winebanks, Barb McQuaid, and me, Kimberly Atkins-Store. Today, we will be discussing a bombshell report about the Durham investigation into the origins of the Russia probe. We'll also talk about the special agent in charge at the FBI in New York who got a little too chummy with the Russians. And, of course, we'll discuss the charges that were brought in the really horrific case of Tyree Nichols. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we get started with that, something that's been on my mind and actually made me think of you guys as, you know, people who write things and teach things. This whole uh, chat GPT situation, basically this bot that's smarter than everybody, right? It can pass the bar exam. It can graduate from Wharton. It can, you know, pass medical boards. And I just wanted to know what you guys think about this. It's a little worrying for me as somebody who makes a living writing things that uh, the bots are taking over the world. It's like a, a new episode of, of Black Mirror. But what do you think about it, Barb? Yeah, I I uh, have the same thought, you know, at uh, in academia, this is all the talk. Everybody's, you know, concerned to have, um, you know, the students all figured out a way to ace all of our exams. Um, and, and so there is some thought going into that. Um, you know, it's a great tool. All tools are great, but all tools can be abused. I actually was just kind of playing around with it to see if it could pass an exam. I know you said it, it could pass the bar exam, which is multiple choice, the multiple choice portion. You know, law school exams tend to be these kind of crazy hypotheticals where students have to analyze the facts and um, apply it to the law. Uh, I, I I put in what was the subject of uh, an exam I did about two years ago, and I typed in, um, is Alec Baldwin guilty of manslaughter? And I had students, it was actually my final exam two years ago when that incident happened on the Rust wow. set, because it forced them to kind of, you know, analyze mens rea, you know, is he guilty in, of what? Um, and it actually came back, it was stumped because it said, uh, I am sorry, I was not able to find any evidence that Alec Baldwin was charged with or convicted <laughs> of manslaughter, because, oh. but my data only goes back to 2021. Oh, oh. so that's the trick. You've got to ask them something recent, although I'm sure that's going to change and going to improve. So yeah. it's it's fascinating. It's amazing. Um, I've talked to students about it. They say that it can draft a pretty good letter. It can write up a contract. <laughs> Oh, that's bad news for the lawyers out there. What about you, Joyce? Do you think that it could pass one of your exams? Well, um, you know, I'm going to have to make a confession here. I'm a little bit less serious than Barbara McQuaid. I know that comes as a shock to people who know both of us. So instead of playing around with my law school exams, um, I instead asked it if it could write a lifetime movie plot. (laughs) And (laughs) so... I actually got a really good plot and I started asking it questions. You know, I got a, a paragraph that was pretty legit and I was like, what happens if she goes to Coimbra, Portugal to take a job at the university? And then I got a paragraph of the plot there. It was really, really good. I think scriptwriters should be very concerned. Wow. Did it involve um, a, a sophisticated city woman who ends up in a small town by accident and meets some hot dad who is widowed with an adorable <laughs> daughter? Because that's like the plot of everyone. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know that that's actually pretty close. I should go. I printed it out, but that's that's not bad, Barb. Good call. We know what Barb does in her free time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What about I've you, heard, Jill? I've heard the other girls talk. You've just outed yourself, girlfriend. <laughs> so the only thing I've taught was trial practice, and because that involves standing up and talking and doing, you know, responding live, I don't think it's going to interfere with trial work, but. Uh, you know, I started thinking, could it have written my book? Could it write Barbara's mm. book? And that's pretty scary. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's, I think we need to learn how to harness it in the proper way. Obviously, academics are going to have to learn how to review student work to make sure that it's actually them doing it. On the other hand, if this is how we do things, maybe if they are good users of this particular app, then... That's what matters is that they can use it properly in their law practices even. I don't I don't know. It's it's it seems like it's taking away the humanity from a lot of things though. It's literally doing that. I mean, I'm a little alarmed even there was a an announcement that I saw recently that BuzzFeed is gonna use it for like their quizzes and stuff, not to replace actual people. But that's where it starts, right? And when you talk about harnessing mm-hmm. it, Ooh. that seems like that worries me as a journalist. And so I hope that people do realize that the humans behind the work that we all do uh, are an important part of the component. At what point do we reveal to our listeners that we're all just a big chatbot? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, were we not supposed to say that out loud? I do want to highlight one other thing before we get started, if I make him. I noticed that each of us, you know, has our little names in our little Zoom boxes here. (laughs) Mine says Barb, Joyce says Joyce. Jill says Jill Wine Banks because you can't refer to her without the whole name. She's sort of like Charlie Brown. You know, it's never Charlie, it's always Charlie Brown. Jill's always Jill Wine Banks. But I do notice that Kim has uh, thrown in a little witticism and her name, it just says, has classified documents. Well, everybody does. So I don't want to be left out. It's the trend, right? Very right. Very good. Every past president, living past president, except for Jimmy Carter and every past living vice president has now been asked to search for documents they might have at home. Jimmy Carter has revealed that he actually had classified documents that they returned to the National Archives, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, he already gave them back. So, yeah. Yeah. so every, literally everybody's doing it. But the reason yeah. he wasn't asked was because he's the one who signed the Presidential Records Act. It wasn't right. a law until after he signed it. So it doesn't apply to him. It didn't go into effect till after he was president. So they couldn't use that as a grounds for saying, do you have presidential records? And it's important to note the presidential records includes non-classified information as well. In 2019, in a seeming response to the Mueller investigation and stories about the Trump campaign colluding with Russia, Bill Barr commissioned his own investigation. It was led by a widely respected, at least up until then, career guy named John Durham. He was Trump's United States attorney in Connecticut, and the mission was to dig into his and Barr's shared theory that the Russia investigation was the result of a conspiracy by intelligence and or law enforcement agencies. Before he left office, Barr converted Durham to special counsel status, which is largely why he's still with DOJ today. 
but he's back in the news. And Jill, I thought we would start there. You know, I really thought we had heard the last of the so-called Durham investigation, which wasn't particularly productive. What did he accomplish and why is he back in the news in the last 24 hours? That's a good question. What did he accomplish? Hardly anything. He did manage to get one guilty plea and to bring two indictments, both of which resulted in acquittals. And even the guilty plea was from a uh, former FBI attorney who had altered an email as part of his application for a FISA surveillance warrant against Carter Page. And he ended up not going to jail. He had 400 hours of community service and a year of probation. Um, The other two were really weak cases that were presented. One was particularly interesting against an attorney named Sussman, um, who was probably only indicted because at one point he had some vague connection to Hillary Clinton, and that's why he was indicted. Um, So why is he back in the news? Why isn't he gone from our you know, perspective. There seems to be nothing to what he was originally assigned to investigate. Um, It's because the New York Times did some amazing reporting. Charlie Savage, um, Adam Goldman, and Katie Benner have a front page New York Times piece that really spells out um, what happens when you miss use the Department of Justice and things like this. So it reports things like the attorney general meeting with this special counsel who was supposed to be independent. That was the reason he was appointed. But they were meeting and getting, uh, sharing information about the investigation, having dinner and scotch in the Department of Justice, which I find, I love that image. Just picture it, guys. It's, It's really good and clear. They were using really conspiracy theories as a predicate for proceeding on this at all. And at one point, which we are now learning way after the fact, it got converted into a criminal investigation because the only evidence they ever gathered, they went to Europe together, Barr and um, Durham, which of course is the exact reason why he was supposed to be independent is undercut by them flying to Europe together. The only evidence they gathered was from Italy, some intelligence about financial wrongdoing by guess who? Donald Trump, not by anybody that they wanted to find evidence on. Uh, My big question now is what's happened to that information? Has there been a thorough investigation of it? Is there going to be any cases brought against Donald Trump? from what the Durham investigation uncovered. It's great reporting, and it's really a bombshell. Yeah, it it really is um, something else, and it seemingly just came from left field. You know, Barb, in the report, um, the Times says that the Durham inquiry became, and I'm going to quote from the piece, roiled by internal dissent and ethical disputes. You and I have previously discussed the fact that there was a woman named Nora Danahy who had worked in the Connecticut office for a long time, longtime colleague of, of Durham's. He brings her back from private practice to get involved in his investigation, and then she 
resigns with little warning. And we had discussed, you know, what we might make of that. What did you learn from this reporting that sheds light on on what we had really conjectured about in the past? Yeah, it's so interesting to read this report because it does confirm some of what we thought, but provides more details about the circumstances. Um, and Nora Danahy appears to be someone who uh, is a you know, career prosecutor, very ethical, wants to do things by the book. And it is uh, in something like September of 2020, so shortly before the 2020 presidential election. And um, John Durham wants to do something that is really quite unusual. That is to issue some sort of interim report about what they have found so far, which is a very unusual thing for a prosecutor to do. I mean, really an unheard of thing for a prosecutor to do. There's even a policy at the Department of Justice that uh, shortly before an election, prosecutors should refrain from taking investigative steps so as to avoid interfering with the election outcome. They don't want to taint uh, the 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 reputation of the candidate in the eyes of the voters when they're not yet in a position to defend themselves. Um, and so it's not that, which would be, you know, a legitimate investigative step. Sometimes it has to happen anyway. He kind of wants to go out of his way and do something that's totally discretionary and gratuitous and unprecedented, which is to file uh, a public interim report. Um, and she she objects to that. She objects to it um, you know, very strongly. And ultimately it is that over which she resigns and she writes a memo back to the whole team about why this is inappropriate. And then she resigns. And as a, I don't, as a result of that, but Durham did back down from that and did not issue an interim report. And you know, you may remember that it, it sounded like it was coming and then it didn't. Um, and so I think we have Nora Danahy to thank for that. The other thing that comes out in this is that there were some other members of the team, also career prosecutors, who strongly advised against filing that indictment against Michael Sussman. You remember, this is the one where there was a very quick acquittal for making false statements to the FBI when he came in and reported information that he heard that was accurate. And there was some concern that what he lied about was that his firm, uh, he failed to disclose that his firm represented Hillary Clinton. Um, but even the witness who testified about that from the FBI knew that it was common knowledge that that law firm represented Hillary Clinton. So that was the indictment. Remember, it's like 27 pages long. It's all about Hillary this, Hillary that. And it, it really reads like uh, an effort to suggest that the Russia investigation began as a result of, you know, some coordinated effort by Hillary Clinton, which, you know, we know it's not from the inspector general's report that it began because of the statement uh, by George Papadopoulos to an Australian diplomat that they had access to stolen emails stolen by Russia from the uh, DNC and the Clinton campaign. Um, and so a second round, when they filed this indictment, two more prosecutors resigned from the team. Um, and they talk about you know, sh actual shouting matches over this. I don't know about you, Joyce, but when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office, there were times when reasonable minds would disagree about what was appropriate in a case. And we would, you know, we would hash it out respectfully. Sometimes people felt strongly about a position. But at the end of the day, um, you know, we made the best decision possible, usually by consensus. If you couldn't reach consensus, there was a leadership chain of command and the leader got to decide. And as long as it was 
was ethical and moral, even if you might disagree about whether it was the appropriate charge, you know, everybody supported that decision and you moved on. You know, the idea, you know, how outrageous must it be for them to say, um, you know, get into screaming matches and, and leave and say it was unethical. But I think these two steps that we are aware of, this the idea of this interim report and also the filing of the Sussman indictment, uh, I can see why career prosecutors would ob- uh, object strenuously to both of those things. You know, we have talked so much in the context of the January 6th committee report about the politicization of the Justice Department and the risks that are entailed in that. And and this is such a reminder that it wasn't just at the point where January 6th happened that the Justice Department was at risk during the Trump administration, that it was really in play throughout that administration. And here's an absolutely glaring example trying to use the Justice Department to go after your political enemies. Because, Barb, you know, I think you're dead on the money about the Sussman indictment. I remember reading it and thinking, wow, who is the defendant here? Is Hillary the defendant? I mean, you know, really, it was just appalling. Um, And now that we know more about the motivations, it it really makes you wonder if somebody's coming for, for Bill Barr's license to practice law. I think that that's long overdue. And so there's an interesting tidbit in the reporting, a lot of interesting tidbits. I think this should be mandatory reading for American citizens. But Kim, the one that I wanted to talk with you about, Jill had referenced this, and it's utterly fascinating, right? At one point in this investigation, criminal allegations surface. Durham is not conducting a criminal investigation. He's looking into the origins of um, Crossfire Hurricane. But he gets a tip that's criminal, And certainly it's about Hillary Clinton, right, isn't it? Well, I remember when there was a news bulletin at the time that kind of came out and said, oh, there is a criminal element to this investigation. And we were all like, oh, oh, who are they going to... Who are they going to charge? Is it somebody in Hillary's, you know, orbit or something? And then I I thought that it ended up being, oh, it's about Sussman. Well, turns out (laughs) when Bill Barr and uh, Durham were in Europe, by the way, what a sweet gig, right? This this investigation into the leak takes you to Europe. Um, That's a sweet gig. So anyway, they're talking to Italian officials and they're asking about the origins uh, of the Russia probe. And they're like, well, I got nothing for you on that, but I do have something else. We have a tip for you uh, that involves some potentially criminal financial dealings that were done by one Donald Trump. (laughs) So Bill Barr is like, oh, oh, the tip was apparently strong enough that they knew they had to investigate it. But rather than giving it to an investigator during the normal course, he gave it to Durham, even though that had absolutely nothing to do with the origins of the Russia investigation. And apparently Durham looked into this. He never filed charges. We we don't know how deeply he looked into it. There are still a lot of unanswered questions, but can you believe it? They were there trying to find some dirt for Donald Trump and ended up getting dirt about Donald Trump. Wouldn't you love to hear that conversation? So we're here to hear about the dirt, about how this whole Russia investigation began. Well, yeah, we got something. You know, we've been waiting for you to call. Here it is. It's, uh, you know, crimes, financial crimes by Donald Trump. Oh, never mind. <laughs> oh, man. You know, I just Can't hope make that there's not a statute of limitations problem and that those allegations can be properly investigated. I mean, un- unbelievable. Um, so, y'all, 
Interim reports, bad, but at the end of a special counsel's tenure, they are supposed to submit a report to the attorney general, right? We all know that. We lived through that with Bob Mueller. Um, And Bob Mueller, as you will recall, uh, did not make the entire report available immediately. Instead, kind grandfatherly Bill Barr saved us all from reading the Mueller report and issued a summary (laughs) that clarified it for us. It explained to the American people that Donald Trump had been completely exonerated. Of course, it was also completely a fantasy, right? I mean, Bill Barr tried to sell the American people a bill of goods that had nothing to do with reality because, in fact, Mueller uncovered serious allegations of obstruction of justice and indicated he could not determine whether or not there was a conspiracy between Trump and, and the campaign because so many witnesses had refused to cooperate and there was information that had been uh, inaccessible for them. But that aside, let's talk not about the substance of Bill Barr and how he handled that, but the process. What happens when John Durham is done? Do you think that the full report gets released? Do you think that Merrick Garland will issue a summary that I'm sure will be more accurate than Bill Barr's was? What do you see happening here? Kim, I'll start with you on that one. Yeah, I... I, I don't know. I, I don't think what we'll see is like the Russian investigation where you'll have Garland coming out and misrepresenting what it is. Um, I just hope that it is presented clearly and fairly to the American people. I hope that Bill Barr isn't somewhere on the sidelines trying to uh, contextualize what it is before it comes out either on Fox News or wherever, uh, which mm. is a, a big possibility. And, and I'm worried about that. But I just hope I think this is an opportunity for uh, Mary Garland to speak to the American people people clearly and plainly about what it is and what it isn't. Jill, what do you think Garland should do? So I think there's a lot of questions here. One is the person who writes the report is Durham. And at this point, someone who used to be considered a straight shooting career prosecutor, if you read, and I I, I join in saying everyone listening should read that New York Times report, reporting, um, Anyone who reads that is going to have no respect for Durham. They will think that he has been sucked in to the fantasy world of Donald Trump and Bill Barr. And whoever Bill Barr is who tried to redeem himself by saying that he told the president that the election wasn't stolen and that it was BS to even think that it was, the real Bill Barr is the Bill Barr that we see here traveling to Europe to try to get dirt that would help the president at the time, uh, Trump. And so I don't expect Durham to actually write all the things that we would like to see in the report, which is that there was no there there would be the first part. And there's nothing about the uh, foundations of the, the Russia investigation that it was in fact legitimately predicated. And I doubt that he's gonna put in about the criminal allegations that he picked up in Italy. And he's not going to show us what he investigated because he probably didn't investigate it. So then the question for Garland is, does he have a statement about how surprised he is at how inadequate the report is? Um, Or am I wrong and Durham will actually treat this fairly and put forth that there was no uh, problem with the Russia investigation and that there were allegations credible about Donald Trump? I don't know. It's going to be hard. But um, Garland is going to be in a hard position if he gets an inadequate report 
and he has to put it out there. I do not for a minute think that he would pull a Bill Barr and try to falsely summarize it as Bill Barr did with the Mueller report. You know, Barb, another problem that Garland might face is um, if Durham, like he did in the Sussman indictment, writes a lot of stuff about people who don't get charged, right? Um, How does he handle that? Would that part of the report get released? Say Durham investigated people and turned up stuff that, you know, as you like to say, is slime but not crime. Does that all then get exposed by, by DOJ or can Garland redact? Yeah, I think this is going to be a really tough call for Garland. He's going to have to read it, obviously, and make a call. But I think his default instinct is going to be to release the whole thing. That's the point of having a special counsel. You get this independent look. Everybody is transparent. Everybody gets to see what's there. And so I think, you know, that will be his presumption. But, you know, I've been doing all this research on disinformation for my book. And a key way of validating disinformation is by getting a credible voice to repeat it. And so if it's in there and Merrick Garland lets it out and it's a bunch of false claims or, you know, innuendos and half-truths and other kinds of things, as you say, like the the excessive verbiage in the um, Sussman indictment about Hillary Clinton, you know, now that's out there. And you know that uh, the right-wing e- ecosystem will repeat it as if it's true. Um, and so there is a real risk of tainting uh, the public. I also think this whole idea of investigating the investigators is is really damaging to public confidence in uh, investigators. Um, you know, every time there's an investigation, we ha- that's what we have inspectors general for, to make sure that uh, our investigators are doing their jobs properly or all government officials doing their job properly. And, you know, when you appoint these, you know, political appointments to come in and review what somebody did, uh, I worry that there is an agenda there. Um, you know, for example, Joyce, one of the things I would worry might show up in here are some of these presumptions that William Barr had when he was working with um, John Durham. Did you read the part where at the beginning of it, he calls Paul Nakasone in. He's the head of NSA, the National Security Agency. He calls him in. You know, this is the guy who does all the signals intelligence. And he like reads him the riot act. Like, you are going to give him everything he needs. You're going to give him access to all the classified information he needs. And he said, like... They were all the, all the intelligence community were just bewildered. Like, what? <laughs> Isn't you number one? You're not my boss. Uh, I have to make my own assessments. And number two, what makes you think I I won't be cooperative? Uh, they said it was just like the intelligence officials were just bewildered by all this. They even said, um, I don't know what the phrase was, but I can guess that Barr used a a vulgar sexual term to say you did this to us and don't think we're not going to do it back to you. And, and they said the intelligence guys are just looking at each other like, what's he talking about? This guy's kind of, <laughs> um, and I worry that those are some of the undertones that could come out in this report, you know, this sort of paranoid, um, deep state sort of idea that will get uh, some validity if it is repeated and issued in this formal fancy looking report. Yeah, so I totally agree with you about that, Barb. And and I think that the issue here um, for Garland is going to be, how do you do the right thing and maintain DOJ's credibility at the same time? You know, DOJ goes to the extent in indictments of not naming people who aren't charged, right? If you're not getting charged, DOJ doesn't smear your reputation. That's one of the justifications for not revealing information about ongoing investigations. I think Garland has to redact stuff about people who don't get charged. But I think it's critical that he take an additional step. And and in my one effort to write in a scholarly vein, I wrote an essay for the Yale Law Journal before the 2020 election. 
advocating for DOJ to engage in um, what I called radical transparency for DOJ, which is to say normal transparency for anybody else. But because DOJ can't talk about the substance of the cases, I think that they have to talk about process and explain to people why they do what they do clearly and, and frequently. DOJ always assumes people know. Newsflash, Merrick Garland, people don't know. You've got to explain it over and over again. I think here he should explain why he's redacting, talk about protecting people, explain that there's nothing nefarious going on. And it's such an opportunity to build trust with people of good faith. There's nothing that you can do about people who don't have good faith. Really, the only people he needs to talk to are people of good faith on both sides of the political aisle. If he does that, you know, it's going to be hard for him either way. He's going to take political hits. If he does that, he'll have done the right thing here. I think if we learned anything from the Starr investigation, Ken Starr, was the reason for a new independent counsel law was because of how he abused the public reporting. And that could be a fear with Durham and would certainly justify Garland in redacting and protecting the innocent. This week, a former FBI official in New York was charged in two indictments with some serious national security implications. Uh, First, Kim, who is this guy? What do we know about him? So his name is Charlie McGonagall, and he was the former head of the uh, head of intelligence of New York's FBI office. That's the biggest FBI office in the country. And there he oversaw really high profile, sensitive investigations, including those involving, say, Russian oligarchs and uh, counterintelligence and counter espionage. And he did that from 1996 until he retired in 2018. And that capped off a 22 year career with the FBI. I think that's why so many um, people who I know, some of my colleagues that I know from NBC and elsewhere, my work as a journalist, um, who knew him, I don't know him personally, were really shocked. It was sort of a bombshell when it landed uh, because it was someone that they did not expect this kind of news to come from. Yeah, really shocking. So let's talk about each of the two indictments because they're slightly different. There's one out of New York and there's one out of Washington, D.C. So first, Joyce, let's talk about the New York indictment. What is he charged with in that one? So, Barb, this situation is really interesting because there are two indictments more or less out of the blue. I mean, it seems clear that there were maybe some inquiries going on. McGonagall had hired his lawyer, Seth Ducharme, who had previously been both in Washington and in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York. Um, But despite what was going on, you know, low-key under the radar screen, For most of us, I think this news came out of the blue. Two simultaneous indictments. The first one is this one in New York that's talking really about behavior that he engages in after he leaves the FBI. But it involves violating something he would have been involved in enforcing when he was at the FBI, the maintenance of economic sanctions against hostile actors like Russia, Russian oligarchs like Oleg Deripaska, who he knew because he was personally involved were on these sorts of lists that prohibited activity with them. And he ends up, along with a co-defendant, acting on behalf of Deripaska 
despite the fact that he was under sanction in a way that really is inimical to the interests of the United States. I I mean, it's hard to overstate how shocking these charges are because of the nature of McGonagall's work. This isn't an FBI agent who left the bureau and then got pulled into something with old contacts. This is someone who's accused of conduct that he would have known from his time in the bureau was prohibited and not just that, also very dangerous to our country. Yeah, and you know, Deripaska in particular is, you know, he's one of these oligarchs, so he's close with Vladimir Putin, but his name came up in the Paul Manafort case. Paul Manafort worked for him, and then you may recall it, there was the appearance in some of their communications that Manafort owed him a lot of money, and they made those, those communications back and forth about, you know, the big, the big jar of caviar and all that stuff. So it's, uh, it's really interesting that of all the oligarchs, it's him. Manafort shared campaign information, right, on, on the Trump campaign with Deripaska-linked individuals. So lots of reason to be concerned here. Yeah. And also, also, Joyce um, and Jill, I guess I'll ask you this too. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I don't want to smear um, uh, Mr. McGonagall per se, but so often in cases when you charge crimes, you charge the ones you think you can prove, um, but you might have three or four other episodes that you're worried about that you're continuing to investigate, or you just can't put the proofs together. So uh, I worry that it's 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 even deeper than than what we see. Um, well, let's talk about um, the second case, the DC case, and then maybe we can um, discuss the significance of these. Um, Jill, can you tell us about the charge out of Washington DC? Yes, uh, it's equally serious. It involves uh, a time when he was still with the bureau, and that makes it in some ways even worse. It involves Albania, Kosovo. Uh, travel to Austria. Again, he, he was traveling a lot. Um, and he was lying about who he was meeting with. He was lying about where he was going. He was lying about who paid for his housing. Um, and he, as an FBI agent, he has to file annual reports um, or periodic reports. Actually, so do a lot of other um, federal employees. And he just flat out lied. And so he's charged in D.C. with false statements and concealing by omission. So it's he's got one charge for not reporting something, some charges for false statements, uh, saying that he went for different purposes, and uh, one for destruction, alteration, or falsification of records in a federal investigation. Uh, all of his charges in D.C. have 20-year Uh, felony uh, sentences attached to them. So he could be put away for the rest of his life, Um, you know, even with sentencing guidelines being less. um, With this many serious threats to the national security, uh, this is really major, and the charges are really serious. It's, It's a very completely written indictment in D.C., but it's a little hard to follow because it says person A and person B. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's, a, it's but if you read it, you really get the sense of he was not working in the best interests of America. That's for sure. And this is while he was an FBI agent in charge of counterintelligence for the largest field office of the FBI. Yeah. And, um, 
you know, that reporting says he took something like $225,000 in cash. He met with the Albanian prime minister. Um, Really, really frightening. Those were the details he left out. And he took the 225, 80,000, 60,000, 65,000 in cash. I mean, and, and of course they lied about what the source of the money was. I'm sure that there's, when you mentioned that there are probably other crimes, what about income tax? Did he report that $225,000 income while he was an FBI agent? I don't think so. So it seems to me there are definitely other crimes that he could be charged with. Um, Kim, Frank Figlusi, who is a friend of ours, he's the former assistant director for counterintelligence at FBI headquarters, has written a piece about this, about the damage that could be done and that the FBI will have to undergo a damage assessment. What are the kinds of damages that the FBI will be looking for in a case like this? Well, it's clear just from the start that whatever guardrails that were supposed to be in place to ensure that our intelligence services are not uh, susceptible to this kind of influence aren't working. I mean, this is really, really gobsmacking. What he did after uh, what he's alleged, what he's alleged to have done both after he left the office and during, Um, that's a really big problem. You know, I, Double agents are fun when they're in a movie, but not in real life. And clearly there is a problem here. One thing, though, uh, in Frank's piece, and we'll link it in the show notes because I think it's really interesting, um, a point that he makes that I think is important, too, is that uh, one charge that wasn't made so far anyway, which is espionage, which uh, suggests that there is no, at least no chargeable evidence that uh, he... Uh, shared sensitive information or documents with foreign leaders. And that's important too. I hope it is the case that he did not. I think there's still a lot more to this that we don't know because new details keep coming out. Um, But in that case, it would make it, it it would be even more serious if he did that. Mm -hmm. And that's not what any of the charges are so far. So we'll have to keep monitoring this. Yeah, I mean, I I think I'd want to see like every classified document he looked at and and wonder whether... Sources named there have been outed or methods of collection have been disclosed. So serious stuff is such a sensitive position. It's very concerning. Well, Joyce, one of the things that we are hearing now is, uh, you know, never let a good scandal go to waste. Donald Trump and his supporters are alleging that this case means that the Trump Russia investigation was a hoax. There you go, folks. Proof it was a hoax. Is there any merit to that claim? Well, of course they're saying that, right? But it's probably meritless. It doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, Trump has always been um, obsessed with crossfire hurricane, hence our earlier conversation. He always wants to disprove. I mean, he's almost obsessively um, involved in disproving any sense that Russia helped him win the presidency in 2016. But look, objective investigators who've looked at the origins of Crossfire Hurricane, like the DOJ IG, have included that that investigation was properly predicated. There were some issues with some early FISA coverage of Carter Page, and and folks have um, concluded, whether rightly or wrongly, that that was a mistake, but that's how the IG viewed it as to the investigation itself, properly predicated. So what would have to be at play here for it to make any sense would be the notion that McGonagall would have been involved in holding something back, right? That something that should have been investigated 
didn't get investigated. Of course, that's pure speculation. There's nothing in these indictments that say that he did that in this case. There is an allegation in the Albanian defendant that he was involved in monkeying with who was and wasn't charged in criminal cases. But once you know that Crossfire Hurricane was properly predicated when it was opened, then the only thing McGonagall could have really done would have been to, to keep things out of that investigation. And that, of course, is not the argument that Donald Trump wants to make. He wants to make the argument that the case never should have been opened in the first place. Yeah, but if you want to speculate, uh, there is room to suggest that maybe the other things went the other way, right? I mean, if he's pals yeah. with Oleg Deripaska, uh, did he keep things out that might have helped Abs Robert Mueller reach his conclusion? Absolutely, right? And yeah. I, I mean, I always go back to the executive summary that Mueller wrote to the first part of his report where he says, you know, there's a lot of information we couldn't get. People didn't give it to us or stuff was kept out of the country. And there's a, I can't quote the sentence, but it says something like, had we had more access to information, we might've viewed events that happened differently. I think that's the most haunting statement in the, most, in, in the entire Mueller report. And there's a question here, right? Because there were always rumors that everything that happened in 2016, Jim Comey's announcement of the decision not to charge Clinton while he damaged her, that that was a result of concerns that there might be leaks out of the FBI in New York, the unit that McGonagall ran. So, you know, either this is just, we live in the world's craziest timeline, or there is maybe other shoes here that could drop. I don't want to get too far down that road. I hate conspiracy theories, but sometimes conspiracy theories are true. Well, it's certainly an interesting time for the FBI. Jill, um, you know, kind of yet another black eye for the FBI. What with, um, you know, not, not anticipating the attack on January 6th and maybe minimizing the militia movement. Jennifer Rubin of the Washington Post is very critical of the FBI's director, Christopher Wray. Wray arrived at the FBI in August 2017, and these crimes are alleged to have occurred between August of 2017 and September 2018. So they're kind of on his watch, but of course, it's a large organization. Is it fair to blame Chris Ray for this conduct? You know, it may not be fair to blame him for something that started the day he got there because, um, and it's a, but it went on for a year. So that raises the question of, isn't he responsible? But I think more importantly in Jennifer's piece, which we should put in the show notes so everyone can read it. Um, she also points out this isn't his first misstep. That, and I think possibly the more important one is his failure to pay attention to the intelligence that the FBI had for January 6th, that there was going to be violence and to prepare for that and to take action to prevent what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. And then secondly, to not do an investigation after the fact to find out why that had happened and that they didn't take action on it. So I think for those two things, it is absolutely fair to blame uh, him. That is something that should have risen to the head of the FBI. And in an internal investigation or, or this internal failure of one FBI agent. And I, and I have to say, reading the indictment, 
It sounds like they must have been tracking him and bugging him because they have very specific things about dates and times that he had dinner with the Albanian president, the Kosovar um, officers. Those kinds of things, it just sounds like they either have a really good inside cooperating witness or they were on to him a long time before this. So I, I, I think Ray does have responsibility that is worth being looked at and might justify President Biden saying, you should be gone. And if you look at his past history, um, he'll go back to making $9 million a year at his law firm. So I don't know that he'll even care. Yeah, he may be happy. <laughs> it may be a great relief. Um, these jobs are difficult. It's easy to second guess people, I think. And um, I'm sure he works if 24-7 is a full day every week, I'm sure he works you know, 25-8 or, or something along those lines. Well, let me just ask you, the three of you your thoughts about, could you ever do this? Could you be a spy like this? Could you work for the FBI and then you know, share secrets with uh, or help out a foreign adversary? I mean, I assume you're all loyal to the United States. And so the answer to that question is no. But what do you suppose motivates someone to do this? I mean, I guess there's the money, but um, you know, the... The consequences are so great, and the disloyalty to the United States is is so enormous. I I just have a hard time getting my head around this. Do you have any theories as to what motivated him to engage in this kind of conduct? You know, sometimes people get compromised and blackmailed. Other times, as you say, Barb, they're just mercenaries, right? They just want to make money. Um, it's interesting that here he's involved with two sort of separate entities, right? Albanians on the one hand, um, Russians on the other. I think that there's the insinuation, although it's not charged that there was some conversation about him um, having conversations on behalf of Bosnian interests with people at the United Nations. So it looks like he might have just been up for the highest bidder. There is interesting reporting this afternoon um, in the Insider that suggests that uh this wasn't the only aspect of his life that was unsavory, that he, in fact, had an affair while he was still at the FBI with a woman who he told he it's was— It's always a woman, isn't it? No, always, always, oh, always right? Told her he was no longer married or that his marriage was yeah. um, about to well, end. Well, there you go. <laughs> to the extent, though, where he, where he knew her dad, where he would go to her house to pick her up with her dad there— and, and the last line of the reporting is the dad saying that after it was all over, he actually called him and apologized for the way he had behaved towards his daughter. I think that there's like a weird personal sideshow that we're going to see in the testimony mm -hmm. if this ever goes to trial. Yes, often uh, an extramarital affair involved. There's usually something that causes somebody to need to hide, you know, make secrets and these kinds of things. Or to get sloppy with it, you know, that yeah. tends to be how they get caught too. Yeah, you get away with it for too long, you get a little arrogant maybe. Well, um, it's an interesting case. We will keep an eye on it. Shelby County District Attorney Steve Malroy announced on Thursday that five Memphis police officers were indicted and arrested on murder charges after they stopped Tyree Nichols for an alleged traffic violation 
and then brutally beat him. Mr. Nichols died in the hospital a few days later as a result of his beating injuries that the five inflicted. We are recording this at 2 p.m. on Friday, which is before the video of this police stop and beating will be released. The family, their lawyer, Ben Crump, and police officials all report that it is painful to watch, that it is inhuman. So warning all of our listeners that you may want to protect yourself and think about whether you want to watch this. There's also a warning that it could result in um, severe reaction from the population that could lead to um, riots. Um, And so that's something that we need to take into account as well. The police chief in Memphis um, said that she condemned the police officer's actions as a failing of basic humanity. That's pretty strong language. Uh, So Kim, could you describe the facts, including who Tyree was and uh, the fact that there was an immediate suspension and firing of the police officers? Yeah, well, not quite immediate, but it did happen fairly quickly. So uh, Tyree Nichols was a young father. He had a young child. He was a a FedEx driver. And he was pulled over on January 7th. uh, He worked the night shift. So it was uh, in the evening. It was about 8 p.m. on his quote-unquote lunch hour. That's when his break occurred. And he often would go to his mother's house uh, during that break. Um, And... And officers pulled him over uh, about 100 yards away from his mother's home, which I just think about that because from every time his mother passes that spot, that's going to be her reminder. Um, And uh, so, again, we're recording this before the video is released. But according to the statements by the officers, there was a confrontation of some sort um, in which Nichols ran away, which I think is important. He's running away. Uh, officers pursued, and there was another confrontation, uh, and that is where this uh, beating happened. That was on January seventh. On January tenth, he died. He succumbed to those injuries, and after an internal investigation uh, and the Nichols family uh, retaining attorney Benjamin Crump, the DOJ announced on the eighteenth of January uh, an investigation into potential civil rights violations. On January twentieth. That's when all five officers were fired after an internal investigation by Memphis police. And on the 23rd, the family was finally able to view the body cam footage before it became public. And that takes us to January 25th, Thursday, when um, they were all indicted. And so, Barb, can you tell us about what each of them was charged with and Talk about the intent that's needed for those crimes. Mm-hmm. Well, the most serious crime they're charged with is second-degree murder. So, you know, not manslaughter, not felony murder, second-degree murder, which requires um, a knowing killing of another person. So really the only thing higher would be first-degree murder, some sort of premeditated killing. You know, I, I planned this in advance. I went with the purpose and I killed them. Knowingly means, you know, I didn't set out that day to kill him. Uh, The the scene sort of presented itself and there I was, but um, I knew that the consequences of my action would be death. So that's a very high high standard uh, and a very serious crime. But there are additional charges as well. 
Um, one is aggravated assault, which makes it a crime um, to intentionally or recklessly assault someone uh, with a result of death or serious bodily injury. And so that either means I intended to inflict harm on you or I knew there was a risk that you would be seriously harmed or killed and I did the thing anyway. I committed the assault anyway. Um, interesting charge, two counts of aggravated kidnapping. Uh, and that occurs when there is false imprisonment and the victim suffers uh, a serious or deadly injury. Um, and so, you, you know, I think what they're saying there is they, they did not have entitlement to arrest or detain him. Uh, two counts of official misconduct, which is a statute under Tennessee law, when someone intentionally or knowingly commits an act under color of law that exceeds his power. Um, and then finally, another crime called official oppression, which is not a crime I've heard of before, but it's a crime under Tennessee law that says a public servant acting under color of law who intentionally subjects another to mistreatment or arrest uh, or detention when the officer knows it is unlawful or um, intentionally denies or impedes the right or privilege of another. So uh, that's called official oppression. So all of those things could all be true at the same time. Uh, they could be convicted of all of them. They could be convicted of some of them. Some defendants could be convicted, but not others. Uh, but those are the charges, and, and they're serious. So I want to follow up with you, Joyce, um, with a two-part question. Um, and, and I think, Barb, to the point about the one sort of strange charge about kidnapping it may be because we haven't yet seen not only the video of the beating, but the uh, police cam footage of what they are claiming, which was that he was driving recklessly. And given the time of day and that he was, you know, a, a professional driver for FedEx, um, I'll be very interested to see what they claim was the reason for stopping him at all. Uh, but for you, Joyce, are there federal charges possible? And is there a federal investigation underway? And because Barb mentioned about he's not, they aren't charged with premeditated first degree murder, what are the defenses that are being raised? Yeah, so the answer to whether federal charges are, are possible and whether there's a federal investigation underway, the answers are, are yes and yes. There are federal civil rights charges that can be brought a civil rights conspiracy among the five officers to um, violate Mr. Nichols' rights. Some people have suggested that's not the case because the five officers who've been charged are black, but it's not the identity of the defendants that matter here. It's the motive. And when you have police officers acting under color of law, that's what we say when we mean legally that they're acting within their duties as police officers, that is a primary civil rights crime that the Civil Rights Division has jurisdiction to prosecute. And interestingly enough, in his own statement announcing the federal investigation, the U.S. attorney in Memphis made a point of noting that they had an experienced prosecutor from the Civil Rights Division on their team. You know, theoretically, federal charges carry a lengthier sentence. A Class A felony in Tennessee, which is what second-degree murder would be, carries a, a penalty of 15 to 60 years. The federal charges could include a sentence that would be up to life imprisonment. Even theoretically, there could be a death penalty charge, although Merrick Garland, uh, I think, has um, said as a matter of policy that, that the death penalty won't be sought. 
at this point in time. But to, to Barb's point and the second degree murder issue, um, it's not premeditated first degree murder. For second degree murder charges, you have to prove either an intent to kill, but not premeditation, not advanced planning of some form. You either have to prove that intent or you can prove malice aforethought, which essentially means showing that someone acted um, with such depravity, with such indifference to human life that it's tantamount to intent. So malice aforethought includes those two sort of mental states, either actual intent or a depraved heart, and that's what prosecutors in Tennessee will have to prove. Obviously, we haven't seen the video yet. We don't know all of the facts, but I recall that when George Floyd's murderers were prosecuted, there was concern about whether prosecutors would be able to prove that pretty difficult, pretty serious state of mind. The jury in that case did the right thing, right? They watched the video and ultimately they convicted and believed that the officers did display depraved heart when they acted. It's important though here to have federal charges as a backup just in case there's a problem in the state case for whatever reason, but also because the federal investigation could vindicate civil rights interests that aren't vindicated by state charges. So as a follow-up to the reference to the fact that the the victim and the police officers are all African-American. Um, the Defender had an article under the headline, Tyree Nichols' murder shows police culture trumps race. It said, some are stunned that such racist mistreatment can be delivered by the hands of officers of color. But what they fail to realize is that belief in the myth of white supremacy has no color. Its practitioners come in all shapes, sizes, genders, races, and ethnicities. Kim, can you talk about that and what we're seeing in this particular situation where it's not white police officers? Yeah, and this is a lesson that I I thought, sadly enough, I thought that we learned this in 2020 um, with the murder of George Floyd in the street in Minneapolis and other cases that have involved police officers of various racial backgrounds. The the point here, and I think the problem is when people hear the word racism, even now, after all the lessons that we've learned, after all the things that I've written and other people that I know have written and spoken about trying to educate people about this, we think of this idea of, oh, I individual one hates individual number two because of individual number two's race. That is, that is a form of racism. It's a tiny, tiny form. And when you're talking about institutional racism in something like policing, that literally has nothing to do with it. It's an institution. When an entire institution is built upon racist premises, racist ideals, racist concepts, it it impacts and affects everyone within that institution regardless of their race. So the problem here is that we have policing in America that is built on the assumption that black people, particularly black men, are inherently dangerous in some way. That when you see a black man, even if he's running away, the imperative is to get him, is to apprehend him at any cost, even his life, right? You would think someone running away, that's the opposite of a threat, right? (laughs) What's the worst thing? Somebody is pulled over for a traffic violation and they run away. It's a traffic violation, right? But no, those officers all had 
even without time to talk together, to conspire, they all had the same instinct, which is to get him, allegedly. I know this isn't, this hasn't gone before a court of law yet. But that's the idea. When you have a system that has this presumption of threat, this presumption of dangerousness, this presumption of criminality that is imposed on black men the way that it is, it doesn't matter the race of the officer because they all act on that. And that's it. Forgive me if I sound frustrated and angry because I am because we have been talking about this for almost three years now since George Floyd died. And I feel like if anything, we have gone at the very least two steps forward and two steps back because there was a shining moment that it felt like people in America were becoming aware of how institutionalized racism works, not just in policing, but in all the institutions in our nation, whether it's education, whether it's the financial system, whether it's housing. And there was this effort to address it saying, oh my goodness, you know, we're all sitting here locked down in a pandemic. We're seeing George Floyd being killed in the street. And there was this epiphany that these problems were still existing in America in a post-Obama America and an America that a lot of people didn't realize this kind of racism still exists. And they wanted to do something about it. And they in the ensuing two and a half years, we have seen efforts to call Black Lives Matter um, a, a terrorist organization of some sort when we really saw what terrorism really looks like on January 6, 2021 at the Capitol. We have this in, this push to uh, pass laws in states saying that history can only be taught or race can only be taught in an objective manner, which I guess is from the perspective of the white male's <laughs> power structure, not from the perspective of black and brown people. We can't even tell our own stories and where we exist in this country and our history. Um, it's this pushback against anything that could get at removing these um, the racism in these institutions. And that's why we get cases like this. So I'm tired. I'm frustrated. I'm not going to watch this video because I've been traumatized enough, as a lot of black people have in this country, and we already know what's on it. Um, but I, I am, I'm also just dis, dispirited because there was a time that I thought, hey, we're doing something. We're making changes here. It's awful. We've been through some bad stuff, but we'll come out of this better. And I'm not sure that's the case anymore. I, I hope you're wrong and that it is the time that we will come out of this better and that there will be some action because we have seen this picture way too many times, including a black man running away from the police and being killed. I mean, this is not the first episode of that. And the use of deadly force continues to be an issue. So, Barb, I want to ask you about deadly force, excessive force. Uh, when is it allowed for a police officer to use deadly force? Yeah, we've been discussing this in my criminal law class just, just recently. So, um, you know, it's, it's such a sad thing whenever there is another case of a fatality uh, in policing because, you know, we all know good police officers who work hard every day to do things the right way. And yet, again and again, we're reminded of uh, the frequency of the abuse of that authority. Um, and um, I think to, to Kim's point, one of the things that is so sad about the last two and a half years is the way that political operatives uh, have used the you know false narrative of wokeness and other things to to divide Americans instead of working to solve problems and improve policing, which I think we all want. We want to be safe. We need police, but we want them to do their jobs in a way that is fair and safe. Uh, and instead, you know, it's this us versus them narrative. Uh, but to answer your question, Jill, of course, police may use force under certain circumstances. 
They're to use it only when it is necessary, and they may use only force that is proportional. Uh, you know, so if uh, uh, someone is getting loud with you, that is not, not enough to uh, you know, shoot them. Uh, you, they try to de-escalate first, uh, and then they're typically allowed to use one level of force greater than that of the person they are trying to restrain, because the goal is to effectuate an arrest uh, or to protect the public. Um, and so, different departments will have different rules, uh, as you've mentioned. You know, some some will prohibit chokeholds. Um, some will. Uh, police departments have stopped as a matter of policy, uh, permitting car chases, because those can be some, so dangerous. But all officers have to comply with the Constitution. And there are certain constitutional areas regarding use of force. A couple big cases, both came out in the 1980s, a case called Tennessee versus Garner, another called Graham versus Connor. Um, and it's a bit of a good news, bad news proposition if you're a motorist, I would say. Tennessee versus Garner um, you know, contrary to what maybe we, we see in the movies, and, and so what we, we are left to, to think about, you know, stop, police, freeze, and when they run, they get to start shooting at them. Um, the police officer may pursue a fleeing suspect, but may not use deadly force, like shooting them, just to prevent their escape, uh, unless the officer has probable cause to believe that the suspect poses a significant threat of death or serious physical injury to the officer or others. So if you're chasing a serial killer, you know, maybe under those circumstances and the person has a weapon and they've been shooting at you, you know, maybe you can shoot back at them. But if it is, as you said, a traffic stop and they're running away, um, the use of deadly force under those circumstances would be deemed excessive unless there's a reason to think this person is dangerous. You know, they're they're firing shots back at you. Um, so that's that's the rule that kind of restricts police officers. But then there's another um, case called Graham versus Connor that um, kind of takes back what they, uh, what was given in Tennessee versus Garner, because what it says is that when we assess the conduct of a police officer, we have to make that assessment um, based on what a reasonable police officer would do under the circumstances. And then they include all these caveats that I think if you're a juror would really cause pause, even more pause than guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, because they say things like, keep in mind that police work is dangerous, that they have to deal with split second decisions under tense and dangerous circumstances in rapidly evolving situations. And so what Graham versus Connor says is uh, you have to think about the fact that you know, mistakes will be made when police officers in that situation, which is all true and, and second guess, but it is, it is kind of, I think, what makes it difficult to hold police officers accountable when they do cross that line. And this case has been compared particularly to the beating of Rodney King, which led to riots in L.A. Um, and I'm wondering, Joyce, if you think that this is comparable to that, if we're just, and that's an old case, if we're still repeating a lesson we should have learned back then, and what do you expect the public reaction to be after the videos are released? Yeah, so this goes back to Kim's comment about that bright shining moment where it looked like there was the possibility of progress and that people in America understood the systemic nature of racial bias um, in law enforcement. And then we took two steps backwards. And in some ways, I feel like we're worse off than we were when the Rodney King um, tapes first came to light. Or even it, then when George Floyd's death was so brutally portrayed on, you know, you, you could not escape it, right? And I just, I don't understand um, 
how we are where we are, where five Memphis police officers, by all accounts, beat a man for three minutes. I mean, that's a long time. That's sustained physical damage. The family's representatives have suggested that he was treated like a human pinata. And there's every reason to believe that when this um, video is released, that people's emotions will boil over. The family has asked the community to protest peacefully. The U.S. attorney made what I thought was a really um, emotional plea, saying that he was from the community, telling people he respected their ability to protest, their right to, to express their views, but that he asked them to do it peacefully. You know, I, I hope the community will do that because, unfortunately, we live in an era where if people are emotional, if there's any violence, then somehow that will be used by people on the right to cancel the legitimacy of the community's anger and outrage over this senseless death. That's like imposing an additional burden on this community, which, by the way, is no stranger to police excessive force. This is not the first time there have been concerns about the Memphis Police Department. I see on Twitter that there is video of businesses in Memphis and surrounding cities boarding up, anticipating that there will be riots. And that says so much about how people view the expression of anger about these events. It, you know, maybe, just maybe, if we made real progress in dealing with what's bad in law enforcement, we wouldn't have to live through this over and over again. I spent 25 years in law enforcement. I believe that there are good people in law enforcement who want to serve. These five officers did not want to serve, right? They clearly did not want to serve. They dishonored their badges. And the problem is law enforcement dishonors communities when it lets these situations be treated as one-offs with prosecutions and doesn't engage in systematic reform, in better training, in better leadership. We are lucky in Memphis, and I promise I will get off my soapbox, but we are lucky in Memphis that there is a police chief who is widely respected as a reformer, and she drove this process. She drove how quickly it happened, how seriously it was taken, and she will bear um, a, a lot of the honor that comes along with doing this right, but it is her department where this happened. There are other officers under investigation. DOJ does not have the resources to reform every police department in the country. They can engage in civil pattern and practice investigations and do consent decrees, but they can't do it with everybody. That responsibility has to come from local police departments and local community leadership, or we are going to be stuck in this rut forever. And can I just underscore one point that you were making, Joyce? If people start talking about bad apples and bad cops and good cops, they're missing it. That's, that's a myth. That is not what this is about. It's about the system, not about the individual action. That's such an important point you made. If it was just one bad apple, right, it wouldn't happen over and over again. That's and, right. and the point that I think sometimes gets lost, I really do promise I'll get off my soapbox, um, but, but something that annoys me so much is we live in an era where hate is again on the rise, right? We've seen hate against Jews and against Asians, but we only see police. We only see our government, people that we empower to carry guns and enforce laws. We see them killing black people over and over and over again. 
and it's something different. It's coming from inside of the house, and we have got to do something about it if we're going to continue to consider ourselves to be a society that aspires to equal treatment and justice. We've reached our favorite part of the show, which is listener questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlawatpoliticon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. When we can, we will answer your questions right on Twitter uh, if, if we don't get to them during the show. So we have first a question from Katara. Uh, the question is, in the event the Fulton County case results in an indictment, and conviction of Trump, Lindsey Graham, etc. Does the Republican governor have the authority to pardon them? Good question. Jill, do you know? I do. And because we're running long, I'm going to answer it quickly. The answer is no. The governor does not have pardon power in Georgia. It goes to a special independent board. Interesting. So I didn't know we're that. safe from the Republican governor. Oh, I learned something today. Thanks, Jill. Uh, our other question, our second question is from Masks. And uh, it says, why hasn't the DOJ searched all of Trump properties? I think that's a great question. Barb, do you know? Yeah, I, I can understand why it's tempting. And I can understand why um, Masks wants to know the answer to that question. Um, but to, to conduct a search, um, the FBI or other agency needs a search warrant and to get a search warrant, you have to demonstrate probable cause that evidence of a crime will be found at that particular location. So it can't be just speculation. Now, is there speculation that Trump has documents at Bedminster or Trump Tower? Yeah, maybe. Uh, seems possible. But what you need is actual facts to suggest that they're there. So when they got the Mar-a-Lago warrant, for example, it's been redacted, but we've seen a good bit of the affidavit. And we know that there were witnesses saying, yes, there are documents here. And Trump asked us to move them from one room to another. And so they had actual facts to support this idea of probable cause, which just means, you know, reasonable grounds to believe that a fact is true. But you need some facts to, to base that on. And in the instance of the other properties, it's really more speculation. I know there are people who think it's buried with Ivana Trump um, outside the golf course uh, in New Jersey. But you'd have to have facts about that. You know, a credible witness who says, I saw it or I was there or I, I, I heard it's Trump or someone say it was there. Um, so I don't think that's enough. And that's why they may be working to develop probable cause that could happen if they're interviewing people who work in those places, uh, aides to Trump, secret service officers, others who may have seen them. Um, but the fact that they haven't conducted those searches yet maybe means they haven't found it, or maybe searches have been done and it hasn't been disclosed. You know, the only reason we know about the Mar-a-Lago search is because Trump himself announced it. Typically the FBI does not announce a search uh, they they announce charges and that information becomes known in the course of a trial. All right. And our final question is from Barb in Northern California, not to be confused with Barb of the sisters-in-law, but uh, it's a great name. Uh, that question is, it was my belief that special security clearances were required for any workers in the capital of the U.S. How could George Santos pass a background and upper-level security clearance after so many instances of lying and having oligarch ties? Joyce, do you know this? Yeah, so this is such a great question, right? George Santos, everybody's favorite fabulist, um, could not get a job in the Capitol if he had to get a security clearance for one at this point. 
But you don't have to have a security clearance to be a member of Congress. If you're duly elected by the voters in in your district or your state, there you are. You might need a security clearance for work on certain committees if you have access to certain types of information or briefings. But George Santos, as he is, gets to work compliments of voters in New York. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joyce fans, Jill Weinbanks, Barb McQuaid, and me, Kimberly Atkins-Store. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag Sisters in Law. You can also go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our shirts, hoodies, and other goodies. And please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Olive and June, Kitsch, Pear Eyewear, and Calm. You can find their links in our show notes. Please support them because they really make this show happen. And you can keep up with us every week by following hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Make sure you give us a five-star review because it helps others find us. And don't forget to tune in next week in particular because we have a really exciting announcement. Hashtag Sisters in Law is going on the road. We will fill you in on all those details. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law. Are there going to be bathrooms on the tour bus when we go on tour? Ooh, I sure hope so. Hope Boy, so. that could can be a long those, drive. Can we get one of those cool like rock band Tour buses, you know, like Ooh. painted black with flames on the side or something with our name on the front. That's what I want. Well, we we do, that, do we have to sing, though? I mean, can Kim do the singing yeah. for everybody? <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to be the biggest diva? Well, I, I, re- I require white shag carpeting, um, <laughs> temperature set precisely 72 degrees and only red M&Ms in my dressing room. So I don't know who the diva is, but just make sure that's in my contract. <laughs>